Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. O oh, poesy, for thee I hold my pen, that I am not yet a glorious denizen of thy wide heaven. Should I rather kneel upon some mountain top until I feel a glowing splendor round about me hung? and echo back the voice of thine own tongue. It is extraordinary to be standing in a room looking at this copy of the portrait, which is so similar to the room we're standing in. It's like a strange double sort of cognitive dissonance. I have a vivid memory of sitting when I was doing my research for the book in the room of what's now the front doorway, and watching people sort of coming through the gate at the end of the little pathway to the lane stop, often couples holding hands, as though to be here together for them as people in love with each other was somehow going to cement their own relationship. When you consider that you lived in London at a time of such enormous political, economic, social change, country that had just been through a revolutionary war with France, a city that was at the heart of a rapidly developing empire, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us, and a sleep full of sweet dreams, and health, and quiet breathing. Those are the opening lines of the long poem Endymion, written by John Keats as a trial of his poetic invention when he was just 22 years old. But when it was published, Endymion was destroyed by its reviewers, and Keats never found widespread recognition in his lifetime. It's estimated that he sold just 200 copies of his books. But he described himself as a rebel angel, and went on to write a sequence of truly extraordinary poems, including Ode to a Nightingale, Ode to Autumn, and The Eve of St Agnes, that have made him one of the best-loved poets in the English language. And Keats created all these works at a remarkably young age because he died 200 years ago in Rome in February 1821 at the age of just 25. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'll be tracing the footsteps of Keats around the leafy village of Hampstead in North London.
We're sitting outside the Wells Tavern now, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest for today's episode. Sir Andrew Motion was Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom from 1999 to 2009. He's written many award-winning collections of poetry, for which he has received the John Llewellyn Rees Prize, the Eric Gregory Award, the Dylan Thomas Prize, and the Ted Hughes Award, among many others. He's also written memoirs, novels, and several biographies of the generations of the Lambert family, of his friend and mentor, the poet Philip Larkin, and in 1997, he published a biography of John Keats. He now lives in Baltimore. He's the Homewood Professor in the Arts at Johns Hopkins University. And, Andrew, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank well, you for joining us. A great us. pleasure for me to be here. So thank you. <laughs> oh, pleasure. Well, we'll talk in a moment about why we're sitting on Well Walk. But can I just ask straight away, why was it you came to write a biography of Keats? Well, there are two answers. One is that I spent the seven years previous to my beginning to write about Keats, thinking and writing about Philip Larkin. And I suppose almost inevitably when I emerged from that, I asked myself who I would like to write about next, at which point story one morphs into story two. Story two being that I think Keats was the first poet who really squeezed my heart when I started writing when I was at school. Mm. Um, I have lots of slightly sort of misty memories of pottering around the playing fields, not playing games, but with a copy of Keats's poems ostentatiously sticking out of my pocket <laughs> um, so that everybody would know where I was coming from. Not just the poems, actually, but the letters, and m- mm. more seriously, so to speak. I think that Keats's letters shaped my thoughts at a very early age about what poetry was and where it might aim itself, particularly ideas which are to do with the relationship between thinking and feeling over a life of sensations rather than thoughts. Mm-hmm more decisively than anybody else I'd read at the time, certainly, and probably more decisively than anybody I've read since as well. So to give myself the prospect of another seven years, which is what I reckoned it would take to write a proper book about him, thinking about this marvellous, genius person, was really a very easy decision to make. And Andrew, you know, I feel like uh, having completed a biography of someone, you're in a privileged position of knowing them almost better than anyone else. Is it possible to describe what Keats was like as a person, having written Well, I'll give it a shot. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's difficult because small as he was, and that is one thing that is perhaps worth saying at the outset, because his sense of his own smallness of stature, his daintiness, did shape his thinking about quite a lot of things, particularly his relationship with women, actually. Um, Certainly feeling slightly at disadvantage because he was born to basically working-class family Mm. in the east end of London, Mm, mm. on, on the edge of the city, certainly. Um, a person at an interesting angle to what we these days might consider to be the establishment. And a lot of the work comes out of that sense of distance, but also out of, I, I think, a, a wish to, in some sense, join up. So if we think about an early poem like On First Looking in a Chapman's Homer, mm. the first good poem he wrote, that's a poem about the pleasures, thrills, elevations of high culture written by somebody who wants to be part of it but doesn't quite feel they are mm. so it's on first looking into Chapman's mm. home and not Homer's home because right. he couldn't he didn't go to the kind of school where you learned Greek and, and on d- first looking you know, he indeed hasn't, um, exactly and yes. so there's, there's that sort of lack of given familiarity yeah. with it so all those things plus enormous sort of charming personality traits I think and, and fantastically energetic funny not at all blasé a brilliant friend 
um, very good sense of humour. I mean, the whole range of things you would look for in somebody that you wanted to be a very good mate with. I'm going to say something that sounds a bit sentimental, and perhaps it is, but I truly think when I consider the the range and appeal of Keats's personality, that he he must have been one of the best people ever to walk the surface of the earth. Actually, wow. there are things in him which to our modern eyes are slightly problematic. I mean, there are certain things in his feelings about women, for instance, that are problematic for us. But in addition to the pathos of the story, the early death and the, the suffering and, and so on, the intrinsic beauty of his personality is something that I think is very well worth stressing. Well, what a wonderful person to share seven years <laughs> with. <laughs> well, quite, yeah. absolutely. I mean, th- and that was very much part of it because even though I, it was really the, one of the privileges of my life to write about Larkin, there were things about that story which were complicated, to put it mildly. And, and also, Larkin was somebody who made his poems more often than not out of saying no to life or maybe. And Keats mm. made his poems out of saying yes to life. Mm. And he's the man from Del Monte. <laughs> what a brilliant <laughs> distinction. I love that. And just, I love what you say about him as a poet of sensation and he had this term, didn't he, of negative capability. As right, a yes. Well, negative capability is linked to the idea of the chameleon poet, that a poet can put themselves in a situation which might, whatever the demands it makes on their intelligence and on their feelings, be somewhere where they can, in a sense, sort of dissolve their self, mm-hmm. identify with, and in the case of the chameleon image, become the colour of whatever it is that they're sitting on or thinking about. And I think that idea about self-surrender in poems... It's probably something that most people who've written poems in the course of a life will recognise. But he has this extraordinary ability to kind of put these complicated, rather elusive ideas, actually, in phrases that we remember. We, well, we started this programme with a, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. And, it, you know, Quite. there are so many lines on yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely, just, that, that crystallise yes. an idea. I mean, I think in my innocent early readings of him and thinking about the letters, I probably thought that he meant that sensation was some sort of substitute for thought. Actually, of course, that's not what he means. What he means Mm. is that um, we should use our senses as a way of thinking. So he's not cancelling poets to sort of, as it were, be intellectually stupid and just rely on their feelings. He's saying think differently about the idea of feeling. Make make feeling a, a, a form of intelligence. So why don't we talk about the place we're sitting at the moment on Well Walk because Keats had been attracted to Hampstead for a little while and we'll maybe talk about the reasons for that in a, in a second sure. but um, in April 1817 he'd grown fed up of his damp rooms in London, I think on Cheapside if I'm That's right. Right. That's right and he moved into a, a set of rooms on this street with his two brothers Tom and George and um, the house they moved into doesn't exist anymore but we can really you know the feel of a street feels very much I as agree. it would have been I'd have I agree yes I think so I mean the crucial thing about the move up here to pick up on what you're already mm. implying in your remark there is that it's high up Hampstead mm. compared to the rest of the city so it was a place to go and be healthy mm-hmm. in and even though his own TB hadn't yet manifested itself there were certainly intimations that his youngest brother mm. Tom had it so it made sense for them to be up here Come somewhere healthier um, and of course it was also somewhere which was associated with Lee Hunt whom we're going to talk about more in a moment and other left-leaning radical writers so there was a kind of double purpose in, in being here it was a way of identifying himself with the politics of the poems that he was beginning to write and also it was just 
at, at the most sort of basic physical level going to do him some good. Absolutely. While we're here, I think it would be a good moment to talk about the poem Endymion. And it was while he was living here that it was published. And one of the things everyone knows about Keats, which you, you go some way to sort of questioning in, in biography, right. but, you know, but Byron had that famous quip that Keats was snuffed out by a review. Yes, and that exactly. review was for the poem Endymion. Yes. Um, More than one bad review, actually. Right. I mean, a kind of host of real stinkers, poor Keats. The, um, the, particular, the one that really is just painful to read was in Blackwood's magazine by John Lockhart, who said, well, firstly, he described it as imperturbable, drivelling idiocy. <laughs> and then he went on to say, it is a better and a wiser thing to be a starved apothecary than a starved poet. So back to the shop, Mr. John, back to plasters, pills and ointment boxes. So cruel. Cruel and also absolutely sort of giving away its own game in the forms of cruelty that it takes too because it's so looking down a long aristocratic nose right, right, at yes, this person. It's, yes. it's absolutely sort of instinct with ideas of class and... Back to the shop. Back yeah, to the shop, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And the, the way in which I tried to modify what's generally been taken as, the, as Keats's likely response to that review is to point out that, I mean, nobody likes getting a bad review, though they happen. And in every writer's life, it is going to happen, and you just have to kind of accept that it comes with the territory from time to time. But also, and rather differently, to get a bad review from somebody who is very easily identified as your enemy could be read as a badge of honour, actually. I mean, if the Tory press, this is a Tory journal after all, the Tory press had said, oh, this is great, then (laughs) that that would have been very difficult (laughs) for... (laughs) So I think we do need to take the idea that he was snuffed out by an article with a very large pinch of salt, actually. I mean, the, the other thing which is worth saying is that he says in one of the letters about the, the hostile reviews that he gets generally that the people who take pity on him for them might be forgetting how hard he is himself on his own work, as a good writer always must be. Those things are, I mean, if my own experience is anything to go by, those things are much harder to live with than anything anybody else says, actually. So... That gives you a, both a sort of vulnerability as a writer, of course, but also a kind of proofing against the idiot judgments of, uh, of other people. Well, let's set off walking now. Let's yeah. wind the clock back a little and head up to, to the place which really inspired Keats's love for this area in the first place. Yes, very good. Let's go left here. So it must have been roughly here. Yes, so we're just, well, we're just reaching the end of Well Walk now. And uh, there's a rather sort of well-positioned bench just at the end next to the quite busy road. Now, this probably isn't the exact one, but there was a bench on this spot known as Keats's Bench, right? Shall we try sitting on it? Sitting on it and see whether we have a haunting experience. Um, Yes, there was a bench here, and there's a, a story of has been spotted sobbing into his handkerchief. Actually, pro- sobbing, and I dare say coughing into his handkerchief, yes. too, shortly before he set off for Italy. William Hone, who was a, That's a, right. a radical writer and bookseller, he wrote that, uh, Winding south from the lower heath, there is a charming little grove in Well Walk, with a bench at the end, whereon I last saw poor Keats, the poet of the Pot of Basil, sitting and sobbing his dying breath into a handkerchief, glancing, parting looks towards the quiet landscape he delighted in so much. That's a very interesting quote in all sorts of respects, actually, isn't it? It's partly interesting because it 
it catches the, the pathos of the moment very well. Um, it also helps to build something that then became very set, which was the idea of Paul Keats. Right. But the only Keats was Paul Keats. Right, yes. And, and I think one of the things that a modern reader wants to do is to be able to respect that, the pathos of the story, but also to say that's not the whole story and there's a lot about his life which is fantastically sort of active and as, as we were beginning to and say playful earlier, and, and playful and, and, and amusing and yes, high drinks with friends exactly. and all that kind of stuff and fiery I mean he's, right. he's somebody who in my mind's eye he's always a bit hot under the collar Keats about something or other um, hot under the collar about his poems which he wrote very quickly hot under the collar about politics um, raging about the kind of depravities of the regency so the quote from Hone is interesting in that respect the other, other interesting thing is him is describing parting looks towards a quiet landscape he had delighted in so much. I mean, right now it's not a very quiet landscape, no, quite. but we, it reminds us that, you know, when Keats was living here, this was a small village on right, the hill above exactly. London. It is comparatively camped now. I mean, it still has its aspects of wildness, the Heath, but considering what it was like in his day, which was to say much more sort of tumble down, much less defined, mm-hmm. with lots of little sort of pits and digging places where people were hauling stuff out of the ground. Um, but from this position, um, we can see the ground sloping away in front of us, past the pillar box, past the hedges, past the houses, but then it disappears over the hill and down towards the city. Um, so a pretty self-contained place with, as we were saying earlier, these very definite reputations for being a kind of a refuge for dissenting people. Well, on that note, let's, let's cross the road and walk into the heath and towards one of those uh, liberal thinkers. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so we've walked into the heath and we're now skirting one of the ponds which dot uh, Hampstead Heath, approaching an area known as the Vale of Health, which is this sort of strange little enclave of houses hidden in a kind of dip of the heath. And it, it, it's got a funny name, but what, what I find amusing about it is that it, you, this area, this little hamlet, used to be called Hatchet's Bottom. And it was a kind of terrible, sort of marshy, malarial area. And then at the end of the 18th century, they had a kind of rebranding exercise to try and make it seem more, um, you know, plug into the, the, the healthy reputation of the rest of the area. And so they named it the Vale of Health. And that's when I've been stuck. But, it, it, you know, it still feels quite damp. It certainly does. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been here for a long time, but my, my abiding memories of it are that it's... The name sort of protests too much about the... <laughs> yes. and makes you immediately think about unhealthiness of certain kinds. But, but over the years, it has been a magnet for writers. It was a sort of enclave within the heath, a, a distillation of the spirit of the heath in some way, I think. The place where Lee Hunt had his shambolic but exciting house, the place where Shelley came, Shelley becoming a friend of Lee Hunt's before Keats became a friend of Lee Hunt's. Lee Hunt, whose own poetic reputation has faded a lot over the years, but who in his day was quite highly praised and prized. You know, since Hunt's day, the area has attracted other writers, hasn't it? But Absolutely, there, there yes. Are, um, I mean, Lawrence lived here just before, just before the war in the early years of the First World War, before he went off down to Cornwall. And I think the Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore... Absol- absolutely, here, Tagore right? was here. Um, I think it says something about the sense of privacy that the place has, quietness, awayness, a little 
bubble inside London that you can feel is sort of not like London at all. Yes. Well, it certainly does feel like that. We're, we've come off a rather muddy path now and walking into the Vale of Health. And it almost sort of merges out of the trees like it a does. mirage. I feel better already. <laughs> <laughs> In Keats's day, what would have been here, do you think? I mean, many fewer buildings, obviously. Well, I've seen one or two engravings of what it looked like, and it's pretty ramshackle. Right. I mean, the interesting thing about a lot of the houses in Hampstead, and this is even truer of what's now Keats House, uh, mm. is that even though it looks like the cutest thing imaginable to our eyes, really it was a kind of pretty jerry-built thing. Right. And, and, and recently built as well. Yeah, very recently built. The walls were one brick thick. I remember when I was sitting there doing my research for the book in the library, just sort of chomping my way through all the books in the library, mm. when it rained... Um, within about five minutes of it starting to rain, you could see the, the damp coming through the wall. Oh, my goodness. And wow. it must, so it must always have been like that. Gosh. There's the Lee Hunt house. Here we are. So we've, we've, we've cut up a little footpath, and we're now looking at the back of a, of a, a rather grand, actually, tall, it is, sort of four-storey... Uh, yeah, square, tall. But I think that this is the site of where Lee Hunt lived. Yes. In a, no, in he, was, his, he was a very much more ramshackle... Thing, but this is a handsome house made of that very appealing dark grey, browny brick. You have a great description in the biography of this location. Well, this is what I wrote about the house in my book. Hunt's house stood in a hollow surrounded by a number of other white painted cottages. He kept it with his wife and sister in law, Elizabeth Kent, in a state of artful confusion, something which reflected his situation in more ways than one. He was at this time £1,400 in debt. That's a lot of money. His notoriously rowdy children charged from room to room. Books were heaped on the floor, on tables, chairs and sofas, and on the piano. Manuscripts, mementos and trinkets were piled everywhere. So it was a kind of arty confusion um, of the time-honoured variety, reflecting, in some respects, the interesting confusion of Hunt's own private life, which was not something that stayed on the straight and narrow. (laughs) So we we talked about... Hunt a little bit, but let's really focus on him now. So right. he was uh, he was the editor of the Examiner, which was the leading yes. well, the lead, liberal uh, the, journal. Yeah, the, the the Examiner was. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It's a sort of sort of new statesmany kind of thing, I suppose. Right. So it was a left leaning place where, if you were of that persuasion yourself, which Keats and Shelley both were, of course, was clearly the place to get published. And in the way of that often goes with successful magazine editors, it was not simply a shop window that Lee Hunt put the wares that people sent him in, mm. um, but also was a kind of forcing house of talent. So if he liked you, the chances were that he'd become your friend and then you'd spend a lot of time here and then you'd meet the, his other friends. And quite quickly, the idea of this gang being a kind of gang mm. built up, and which went straight up the noses of the right-wing reviewers. <laughs> right. and, yes. and we know what happened next. You know, uh-huh. they, they didn't like it. They didn't like this Cockney upstart uh, the Cockney School, they absolutely, called it, they? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. um, in their s- snooty way. Hunt published O oh Solitude, Keats's right. first poem in, in right. print. And uh, Keats's friend, Charles Clark, describes this kind of turning point, really, when he first introduced yes. Keats to Hunt here yes. on this very spot in October 1816. It's quite a thought, that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the, the relationship with Clark is complex because it was Clark's father was... Keats's schoolmaster, and both the father and the son, Charles, clearly recognised that Keats was out of the ordinary. 
And even though later on the Sun Clark takes and justifiably a good deal of credit for spotting Keats's genius, in the very early days of the connection with Lee Hunt, it's pretty clear that actually Clark dragged his heels a little bit, as though he mm. felt a bit jealous, perhaps, of mm. Keats, because Clark himself wanted to be a writer on the inside track. And But then, in his wisdom, he realised that actually this was not a talent that he could compete with very easily. And he backed off a bit and mm-hmm. didn't Im- impede the progress of the friendship with Lee Hunt. It's, a bit, it's amazing to think of Keats coming here to meet him and, and, and being introduced to... You know his heroes. You yeah, know, people absolutely. like Shelley and Hazlitt, absolutely, and Charles absolutely, Lamb, absolutely. All in this cottage. Well, it says something very interesting about the smallness of the literary cultures, doesn't it? I mean, it's by no means the um, the only literary culture of the time. In fact, it's quite defiantly setting itself up in opposition to some of the literary cultures of the time. But that sense of the second generation Romantic poets, Keats and Shelley in particular being identified very early on by Lee Hunt, being mm-hmm. corralled by him, being encouraged by him, being fed literally and metaphorically by him in all sorts mm-hmm. of ways. That's that's very appealing, I think. And whatever else has happened to Lee Hunt's reputation, he deserves a lot of admiration for that. Mm-hmm. One of the most practical things he did to promote Keats was write an essay in the December after he met him called Three Young Poets, and those were Shelley, Reynolds, and Keats. Yeah, pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Reynolds, of course, is the is the one that we yes. don't read so much <laughs> right. anymore. But he was quite a big name in his day. And I have a very soft spot for Reynolds, whose life rather fell to bits later on. I think I mean, there's some suggestion that he drank a lot. And right. But it's him who, who wants many years after Keats's death, but before Keats's reputation gets anywhere near what it is these days, who, who wants to have the friend of Keats written on his gravestone. Mm. As though that was the absolute sort of lodestar thing in his existence. Mm. And it's very touching, that. Gosh, that is touching, yes. Quite a few of his friends did that, actually, which, again, is a sort of testament to the extraordinary charm and magnetism of his personality. Yes, so that's their defining... Yeah, quite. <laughs> I knew <laughs> him. Life achievement. You know, and that, yes. that was the kind of yes. big thing for me. Yes. Well, it was soon after meeting Hunt here in, in October 1816, you know, a few months later, in March 1817... The first volume, the first collection of Keats's poetry was published under the simple title Poems, with a dedicatory sonnet to Hunt. And, and when it was published in the garden here, we could almost imagine it's one of these gardens, sure. Hunt cut branches from the bay yes. tree in the garden and put the laurels around Keats's head and, you know, Indeed. said he'd arrived. Indeed. And um, the reviews weren't quite as bad as they would be for Endymion, but they were not good. Not good. And his career didn't, as everybody hoped, of course, that it would suddenly take yes. off. I think there's some suggestion that by the end of Keats's life, admittedly a very short one, nevertheless he had published three books by the end of it, that the combined sales of those three books were something like 250 copies. I mean, <laughs> so he was very underread. Yes. But the people who read him made sure that other people heard about it and so on. So, that, for instance, when Tennyson and... Hallam, the dedicatee of In Memoriam, mm. are in Cambridge in the very early 1830s, which is only you know, less than a decade after mm. Keats died. Hallam in particular, and then through Hallam's advocacy, Tennyson himself, get very deeply into Keats, and you can hear that in Tennyson's own and writing, Tennyson, As Tennyson became more and more of a sort of Right. grandfather of right. English Absolutely. poetry. He, he promoted he, he Keats's spe- memory, He speaks for he? Keats. So, yes. so what we're looking at here really is might seem quite a small thing in itself, but it's mm-hmm. a kind of petri dish for, for growing uh, admiration for Keats, who by 1860 or so is beginning to look in the canon like the person that we, we have today. Mm-hmm. While we're here thinking about Hunt as, as Keats's 
poetic mentor. Mm. I wondered whether there are any parallels with your relationship with Philip Larkin, who had almost come to the end of his writing career when you first he met had. him. And yes. it's just, I found it interesting that Keats sort of needed Hunt, but then also needed to move beyond him as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the pattern for a lot of writers, isn't it? I, I quite deliberately sought out Larkin, to be completely honest about it, in the sense that when I finished doing my research at university and was beginning to look for a job as a teacher within university elsewhere, when the job came up at Hull, I thought, well, that's very good, because if I go to Hull, then the chances are I might meet Philip Larkin. <laughs> I have to say that my hopes weren't that high, um, because he did have this reputation of being fantastically sort of grumpy and standoffish and <laughs> never gave readings and all those sorts of things. Also, it's certainly in my disposition to want to learn from people, but it wasn't really in my disposition, and it, I hope it isn't now, to sort of hang around them in a suck, sucking up kind of right. way. <laughs> um, and I certainly didn't expect Philip to be able to do much for me in the way that Lee Hunt, for instance, mm. did a lot for mm. Keats. He published him, he endorsed him, he encouraged him, he gave him shelter when he needed it. It wouldn't have been in Larkin's character to, to do any of those things. So what really lies at the centre of your question, I think, or any answer to your question, is that it's like a kind of laying on of hands for young emerging poets to feel in the company of mm -hmm. the, their elders and their, their betters. I felt when I met Larkin in Hull and did, rather against the kind of odds, become his friend, very much as I'd felt as a student meeting W.H. Auden, that just to be in their company, that was th where the learning happened. Mm. It made the writing of, in both their cases, great poems seem like something that was a long way off, but that wasn't actually an impossibility. Right, a human rather exactly. than... Exactly, yes. Um, and to see Auden sitting in his sort of shambolic room in Christchurch um, and to see Philip in his house in Hull was a kind of benediction. I love the description you put in... Um in the biography of, of his meeting with Wordsworth, which he so anticipates and then is rather, rather disappointed I know, by. I know, <laughs> not there. Um, but he leaves a note, doesn't he, on the mantelpiece when they go up to the late district, mm. having, previously, you're right, having previously met him in London. Yes, well, that's always the risk, isn't it? <laughs> yes, um, don't meet your heroes sometimes. Quite. <laughs> well, let's walk out onto the heath now, away from Hunt's house and down through the heath to the house where Keats is perhaps best remembered today. Great. Lead on. Yeah, straight ahead, yeah. Bright star, would I was steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendour hung aloft the night and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing on the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest, still, still to hear her tender-taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. We're coming out of the heath now, down towards... Hampstead Heath Station and the village of South End, and we're approaching what is today called Keats House. This building was called Wentworth Place in, in Keats's day, and when he had first arrived in Hampstead, 
he was quite quickly introduced to the author Charles Dilk, who lived in one half of the house. We're just about to turn right onto a street that's been renamed Keats Grove. Yeah, well, so we're walking up the slope towards the little church which stands at the top of this road. And there are houses on both sides of the road, but of course in Keats's day, this row of houses on our right, in other words, the side that Keats' house is not on, would have been much more patchily built on. In other words, the house would have overlooked the heath more or less directly. Yes, yes. I think there were one or two houses facing, but, but only one or two. And certainly not being lived in by people with gigantic <laughs> yes. four-by-fours. There are some very large cars now. on the street. Right, we're entering the garden now. And here it is. Keats' house. And there's, look, there's the brown plaque marking it as where Keats lived. I wonder, Andrew, would you mind reading your description from the biography of, of the building? Of course, yes. So, it was in effect two semi-detached houses, a white Regency box, which stood in its own garden, faced directly onto the heath and had separate entrances for its incumbents. The atmosphere in Hunt's Cottage had been exhilarating and hectic. Everything in Dilk's house was amiable and orderly, but in its way just as likely to appeal to Keats. So the Dilks lived in one side of this. That's right. Two properties. And then in the other side was Keats's friend, Charles Armitage Brown. Exactly, yes. Another poet. And on the 1st of December, 1818, when Keats's brother Tom finally died, Keats walked down the hill from Well Walk to this building and woke up Brown. Exactly. And that was the moment when Brown invited him to come and live with Yes, him. And, that's the, and that's a very marvellous act of friendship by Brown. I mean, the friendship is not without complications later on for reasons which are very similar to those that perhaps attended the friendship between Charles Clark right at the beginning of his life, which is to say that there is some little sort of traces of possessiveness and envy, I think, in the, in the feelings that Brown has for, for Keats. But, but basically, I think when the time they were together is a ha- happy time in terms of their friendship, at least. And living in this new-built, I mean, to our eyes, glamorously beautiful, perfect sort of London house, um, but in their day, um, not exactly a wimpy home, but certainly a kind of new-built, slightly rawly attached to the earth place, looking more or less directly onto the heath, itself a scruffier place than it is now, wouldn't have had the sort of settledness that that this place has, both in in terms of the house itself and also, of course, in the garden, because... Right beside us here as we're talking is this gigantic mulberry mm. tree which has associations with Keats's stepping outside to, to write things and is itself sort of almost sunken onto the ground now, kind of leaning on its elbows, its many elbows. Amazing to think that Keats would have known this very tree. It is quite extraordinary, isn't yes. it? Absolutely extraordinary and wonderful, I, I think. And Brown said later, didn't he, that... He, he said in a letter, I never knew how closely he was wound about my heart. Right, exactly. So really touching yeah, very much so. line, isn't it? Very much so. That he, he loved him, didn't he? And yes. And he was a diffi- yes. sort of found that difficult. Well, he was lovable. Um, mm. We see that in all the accounts of his friends for him, who, who by and large behave extremely generously towards him at the end, including his publisher, John Taylor, um, who's endlessly forking out money for him. And <laughs> there's never enough, because poor Keats is living on... You know, a wing and a prayer, really, by the end of his life. And Brown later emigrated to New Zealand, but he's another of the friends who was buried with 
the line, a friend of John Keats. Absolutely, yes. Well, let's head towards the house, and I can see standing outside it uh, the curator, Rob Shakespeare, who we're about to meet. Very good. Rob, hi. <laughs> Hello, very well. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. Sorry, Tom. Okay, so we're entering the house now. First, we're stepping into a, a more recent extension, which, as you were saying, Andrew Keats and Brown would not have known this room. But you are walking through the doorway that he would have used ah, to access his yes. side of the house. So now, stepping out of that room, this is the old front door to, to Keats and Brown's side. But let's head straight through to, through to the Dilks side of the house, which today is called the Braun Room. And... Rob, I wonder, could, could you um, describe the room for us and how does it look today and how might it have looked at the time that the Brawns were living in this side of the house? So we're studying a room that is essentially two not-through living reception rooms yes. on the ground floor. We're on the larger side of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dilts had a slightly larger side and I always sort of refer to Charles Brown's side of the house is more like a two up, two down, really. Yes, much smaller. uh, With a a, a basement under. Uh, So, yeah, it's decorated today in Regency style. We use it to tell the story of Keats's early life. Uh, The bust of Keats uh, set at his height Mm. always sort of amazes our visitors when they walk in. They assume it's just a bust on a plinth. But that, that set at his height in How life. brilliant. We've been talking about his small stature, and that really yeah. strikes home, doesn't it? It comes, I mean, on to me, it comes sort of to my chest. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Five foot, what, I'm going to say foot five foot one. Five foot and a quarter of an inch or something. Yeah, time? something like that. I'd, I once thought that it would be a good idea to compare his height to the heights of the other great romantic <laughs> poets to see how much shorter right. he was than them. And actually, he's not very much shorter than John Clare. Oh, that's um, interesting. Wordsworth is only five foot nine or something. Really? But basically what happens is that the more posh you are and the better your diet is, the taller you are. Right. Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, so working class Keats and working class Claire are the two short guys in this. And then you kind of work up to Baron and uh, Shelley, the public school boys at the, at the higher end of the spectrum. How interesting. Doesn't Gosh. he refer to Byron as a lanky lord? Yes, at one he does. Point. Lanky exactly. lord, yes. great. Lan- lan- lanky and limping lo- lord. <laughs> um, now, in the house today, this room is called the Braun Room because soon after Keats came to live with his friend Brown in the other half of this house, the Dilk family who lived in this side rented this side of the house to a family with a single mother and uh, several children, the eldest of which was a girl called Fanny. And, Andrew, perhaps Keats is almost best remembered for the love story that grew between him and Fanny. That's probably true. I mean, it seems rather fortuitous that he should have found his great love through the war, as it were. (laughs) Um, I mean, it says something about the smallness of his life, I think, that that should be so. It's also surprising because, even though there's some evidence to suggest that Keats had had relationships with other women before... But I think that the other surprising thing about it is that Fanny Braun was young and she had much less experience of the world than Keats himself had. And, and Keats's experience of the world, as we were saying, was in a sense limited to... He calls her a minx um, quite soon after he first meets her. In other words, she had a kind of spiritedness about her that might just as well turn him away from her mm-hmm. as attracted him to her. 
But she also and obviously had charm of her own, not perhaps initially quite to match his, but a sort of curiosity about life and very quickly a sense of his specialness. Mm -hmm. So even though their life in this house is a kind of torment for both of them, and one's inclined to say especially for him, I mean, imagine living through the other side of the wall from the person you were in love with and, and hearing her taking off her dress at night yes. um, and clearing her throat and so on and not being able to realise any of this in any of the obvious ways. So even though their, their time in this house was rather tormented, it's also the site of a kind of bonfire of passion that builds up in him. So for him to leave here and go off to Italy to try and recover his health was really a way of sort of wrenching his heart out of his chest. We were talking earlier about the extraordinary letters that Keats writes, and there's a collection of 37 that he wrote to Fanny, which she kept for the rest of her for life. The, for the rest of her life, even after getting married to somebody else and so on and so forth. And they're some of the most extraordinary they are. love letters. They are absolutely extraordinary. They're intense and passionate and headlong and self-giving in really unique ways, I, I think. And he says that when he's reading her letters, or thinks about reading her letters, um, they go through him like an arrow, doesn't oh, he? Gosh. Which is both to do with being pierced by it, obviously, but also in some sense being mortified by, by this, because to read them was a, a reminder of what he was never going to have. And he gave her a ring, didn't he, before? Yeah, which she wore for the rest of her life. For the rest of her life, even though yeah. she, she married yes. later. And yeah, and seems to have been sort of yeah. happy. I mean, she lives into the, the era of photography, so we have a photograph of her as an older person, don't we? And she probably didn't look very like she did when he met her yes. yeah. <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah, Quite. It's an amazing artefact. It's a very powerful uh, photograph. It is, isn't it? Early photograph. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's really interesting, actually, you know, you referred to it, how many of our visitors actually come to the house to discover or, or experience this story mm. at first hand. Uh, it really is a, a powerful connection with Keats's life through the prism of that story. That is I, fascinating. Yeah, I must say, I'm very interested that you'd say that. I have a vivid memory of sitting, when I was doing my, some of my research for the book in the room of what's now the front doorway, and watching people sort of coming through the gate at the end of the little pathway to the lane stop, often couples holding hands, as though to, to be here together for them as people in love with each other was somehow going to cement their own relationship. It was remarkable to see. It happened every day. So the pathos of all those letters is absolutely irresistible. Um, they're also, like the experience in the house, must have been tormented in certain respects. They come with certain expectations about how women should behave that look old-fashioned to our eyes. And perhaps more surprisingly and less commented on is that there is, in Keats's tone with her, often a kind of hecticness, mm. um, which speaks to me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, as much about illness as it does about mm. love. Mm. Um, so it's quite difficult to unbraid the feelings that his illness is provoking in him from his feeling of intense adoration of, of her. Of course, she must have uh, had a huge influence over his poetry at that time. When he starts falling in love with Fanny, this is the start of the year where he wrote some that's extraordinary... Right. That's right. I mean, it's very, eight verses. I, that's right. I mean, all the great poems bar the Chapman's Homer basically get written at the, in the last part of his writing life and it's very difficult not to feel that even those poems which aren't about Fanny directly and of course some of them are about Fanny directly by name that what she did for him 
was basically to kind of eroticize the entire world mm. and make it writable at a new pitch of intensity mm. for him. Well, talking about Fanny, Andrew, it must have been a wonderful um, and sort of unexpected surprise after you'd written your biography of Keats to be contacted by the film director, Jane Campion. Yes, because, that's right. Because <laughs> she read your biography and, she and loved it. She read my biography and liked it. Um, she rang up and said, you know, hello, is that Andrew? Um, it's Jane Campion. And I thought it was one of my friends pulling my leg, <laughs> of course. Um, so I think the first thing I said was come off it or something like that. Anyway, she said that she wanted to meet and talk, so we had lunch together. And I said, you know, what do you want me to do? And she said, well, really what I want you to do is explain negative capability to me. Oh. Um, and that would be very handy. Um, and I said, well, I can probably do that now. But, 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 was wondering whether there was anything more to do. And actually, we met quite often after that, and we would just sort of pick up Keats's life and poems over together. Um, well, we should say that she was reading your biography, and what she said was that after having got through about half of it, she says, nothing prepared me for the last third of your biography. Yeah. She says, here motion outlined a love affair, unparalleled for its touchingly detailed and weepingly tragic proportions. And well, I, I think that inspired her. I don't think I knew that, but it's very nice <laughs> to hear. And it is true that I was, and I remember when I was writing the book thinking, right, go for it for, in the last bit, because this is, you know, I want everybody in yeah. tears by the end of this book. Because <laughs> it's only fair to him that that should yes, happen. yes. And so, she's, so she put together a, a film production of those exactly. last years of exactly. Keats's life. Exactly, exactly. Um, which she called Bright Star. Which she called Bright Star. It's a, it's a wonderful film. And I think so clever that she makes a decision to show it all from Fanny's point of view. Yes, quite. It's, it starts with yes. Fanny walking, it ends with Fanny walking. That's and, right. Um, That's right. And when Keats leaves this house, first to the Isle of Wight and then uh, to London, and you know, there are times when he's away from her. Exactly. We see Fanny, and we we only see Keats through yes. his letters. She's very good at the languorousness in Keats. I mean, Keats's languorousness is not doziness. It's a sort of high-energy lassitude, if that doesn't sound too paradoxically <laughs> true. So those scenes with Fanny, the one that lingers in my mind is Fanny lying on the her bed, and the window is open, and the mm. breeze and the cur- yes. lifts the curtains a little bit and sort of blows up her dress. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, that's properly sexy as it needed to be, because Keats was... It's a, yeah, I highly recommend yeah, watching the film. It's fantastic. Very much so. I think, if I may, it's mm. one of the things we've tried to do in recent years to look at the story from the women of Wentworth Place, as it was then, um, and bring their stories I- into the history of the house as well. Mm. And I think it's really interesting, actually. I, I didn't realise at first and then quickly found out that um, Fanny Braun lives here much longer than Keats ever did. Mm. Uh, She has a deeper association with the house, really, partly, obviously, because of her deep love for Keats and and wanting to stay around this area. And then Keats's sister, Fanny Fanny. Keats, comes to live after a long correspondence between the two, which actually we're digitising and making available at the moment. Uh, So that's a really important part of our ongoing work as the Keats legacy, really, to look at those uh, items in our collection and bring them to the fore and and tell the history of the house in a slightly different way. That sounds like a great initiative. Yes, of course. So Keats's younger sister, Fanny, he was was very worried about what would happen to her. Fanny Braun kind of takes her under her wing. And eventually, when Fanny Keats marries, they... She and her husband live in the in brown side of the house where Keats had lived. We're standing in a, an extraordinary spot at the yes. moment. 
I'm very glad you're doing that, I must say. That sounds like a really good idea. Yes. Well, let's move through from this side of the house, the, the Dilk and the Braun side, to the side that Keats shared with his friend Brown and into the room known as Keats' parlour today. Let's head this way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To autumn, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. In this room, Andrew, maybe we could talk about his third published poetry book, which is really one of the greatest books of poetry ever published. Absolutely. I mean, perhaps the greatest, certainly up there in the top half dozen. It has all the odes in it. It has all the great narrative poems in it. Um, it has fragments of longer works that, even though clearly the, the, their fragmentation was a source of tremendous disappointment to Keats in some respects, also nevertheless contain absolutely wonderful passages. And a lot of those passages are to do with, as very often the odes are, questioning of what the role of the poet is in dealing with suffering. Um, the fragment of the Fall of Hyperion in particular has a passage about physicianliness in it. Keats, of course, remembering his younger mm-hmm. time as a, as a doctor, not the person who didn't finish his training, but the person who, I mean, to put it crudely, having trained himself to he- heal the body, then in his poem spends a lot of time trying to find ways of if not quite healing the mind, then at least of addressing the mind to questions of salubriousness of one sort or another. So the, the poetry book we're discussing was published as Lamia, Isabella, The Eve of St Agnes and Other Poems. And Rob, is there a copy here? There is. Yes, yeah. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, Yeah. the, the parlour that Keats rented from Brown is recreated today 
based on the portrait um, of Keats by Seven that actually hangs in the National Portrait Gallery and at the house here we have a later copy by an artist called Dyer but it shows Keats in very sort of thoughtful reflective mode sat with a book on his lap with the window open yes. facing out onto the heath behind his presider Shakespeare a print of on the wall above him and his bookshelves uh, and when the house was reinterpreted there was great care obviously and attention to that painting uh, and to create this room that really for me is the heart of the house for for any visitor uh, you really feel Keats in this room still, I hope. Well, it is, it is extraordinary to be standing in a room looking at this copy of the portrait, which is so similar to the room we're standing in. It's like yeah. a strange double sort of cognitive dissonance. And then thinking how, you know, Keats wrote or refined these extraordinary poems in this very room and then looking at this original copy of of the poetry book. So many of Keats's most famous poems are in this collection so many of his famous lines are found inside it. You know, you think of his Ode on a Grecian Urn, where he says, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Yes, which we're still wondering what it means <laughs> 200 and some years later. <laughs> glad you said that. <laughs> and, and somewhere I think you've described Keatsian style as opulent, velvety, swooning. Yeah. And... That's very much the impression you get from reading yes. Keats, isn't it? This sort of it's certainly the impression I get, and and that's where yeah. I, that's where I sort of loiter in in Keats. That's the thing that makes him unique, which is a slightly long-winded way of saying that is for me what Keatsian means. It is it is amazing that he wrote these these extraordinary late works when he was still so young, at the age of just twenty three, and and but five of those six O's were written. In two months, April and May, eighteen nineteen. Yes, it's a it's a kind of epic spasm, isn't it? One of those other odes which we haven't mentioned yet is perhaps the most famous single poem by Keats, "Ode to a Nightingale," and Charles Brown had a had an account of how that came to be written. And uh, Rob, I wonder, would you be happy to read out Brown's description of the writing of "Ode to a Nightingale"? In the spring of eighteen nineteen, a nightingale had built her nest near my house. Keats felt a tranquil and continual joy in her song. And one morning he took his chair from the breakfast table to the grass plot under a plum tree, where he sat for two or three hours. When he came into the house, I perceived he had some scraps of paper in his hand, and these he was quietly thrusting behind the books. On inquiry, I found those scraps, four or five in number, contained his poetic feelings on the song of our nightingale. It's a wonderful anecdote. It is. It is. It's absolutely marvellous. But it's very touching that he took the chair out, I think. Yes. <laughs> Rather than kind of throwing himself on the, on the yes, ground. Yes. Um, but it's a very good three, two or three hours' work, isn't it? Darkling, I listen. And for many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death. Called him soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. 
So we're now entering Keats's bedroom, where there's a four-poster bed. And of course, there's a terrible story of, of how in February 1820, Keats had travelled back from London without his coat and sitting on the outside of the carriage in a terrible uh, downpour and arrived home with really serious symptoms of tuberculosis and came up here and threw himself on the, the bed in this bedroom and coughed a drop of blood onto the pillow. And of course, as a trained doctor, he knew from the brightness of the blood that it was um, arterial and said, you know, that drop of blood is my death warrant. And from that moment, really, he, his health deteriorated fast. Yes, I mean, so many people died of TB in his time. Captain Death is one of the terms that people used to talk about TB, that people must have lived in fear of it in the same way that we, generally speaking, worry about getting COVID. But of course, they didn't know that it was a, a disease that could be transmitted in the way that it is transmitted. There was an awful stigma around it as well, wasn't well, there? Well, I, I think so. And I've, I've always thought that even though so many people were dying of it, because people living in cramped conditions, for instance, poor people, were even more likely to get it than others, there was a sort of social stigma about it. And not only that, but there was also an idea about people with weak will being especially susceptible to it. And I think when... Byron is having a go at Keats in his letters and is accusing him of frigging his imagination. Mm. That particular abuse of Keats comes from Byron just taking on board these bogus assumptions about mm. who is especially vulnerable to it. So Keats probably would have felt a certain degree of sort of social stigma as well as just feeling petrified of dying. Yes, yes. And... Brown nursed him, and um, as we said earlier, Lee Hunt, his old mentor and friend, came and helped find him places yeah, to stay. That's right. And eventually the doctors suggested that he wouldn't survive another winter in England and needed to find a warmer climate. I mean, that whole journey must have been such an ordeal. Gosh. I mean, it took weeks just to get out of the English Channel. Right, uh, yes. And they were putting into land, and Keats was continuously, must have been drawn back to absolutely, London at that point. Yes, He'd already endured terrific storms. Absolutely. Um uh, and then to land and be so close to places he knew, like Winchester, and he went to visit Great. again his friends exactly. near there. Exactly. Uh, he narrowly missed seeing Brown again at that point, uh, who was trying to travel to to catch him on the coast before oh, really? he left the coast for good. And it must have been such an intense emotional journey. It sounds like a terrible journey, terrible storms around the Bay of Biscay. And then, of course, when they were about to arrive at Naples, they discovered that the laws had changed in Italy. They had to quarantine for another 10 days. Exactly. I mean, he was going to die wherever he was, but he, it's hard not to feel he would have died more happily here than he did over there. Well, he arrived in Rome um, the 14th of November, 1820, and was put on a sort of bizarre regime of a starvation diet of one anchovy and a piece of bread a day which you know must have just weakened him even further indeed and uh he wrote his last letter on the 30th of november to brown saying my stomach continues so bad that i feel it worse on opening any book i have an habitual feeling of my real life having passed and that i'm leading a posthumous existence well effectively and, he was leading a posthumous existence i mean he, he wasn't going to write any more poems and that's what he was here to do. 
And so a few months later, in, on the 23rd of February, 1821, Keats died in his rooms at the bottom of the Spanish Steps, which have now become the Keats Shelley Memorial House. And he's buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome. And on that note, let's head out into the garden again to talk about Keats's afterlife, about his posthumous legacy. And maybe I'll take this opportunity to thank Rob. Thank you so much for letting us into Keats House today and for joining us in this conversation. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So we've just stepped outside the house again now, and maybe this is a good final moment to think about Keats's legacy since his death. It, it took a whole month for the news of his death to arrive in London, and then Fanny Braun uh, stayed in mourning for six years following that, and eventually... Keats's younger sister, Fanny, came um, to live in this house at the same time as Fanny. So, you know, she did what she could to remember him. Very much so. I mean, you get a strong sense that Keats never leaves her. Um, mm. What her eventual husband made of this is another question. But, but since he was quite a long time dead by the time that she did get, eventually get married, I suppose the sting had, had gone out of that. And his friends never give up on him. They keep his name alive. Um, but it is true that for all that, the arc of his reputation doesn't really start to climb upwards until quite a long time after he's died. We talked earlier about how in Cambridge in the early 1830s, Tennyson and Hallam in particular have a, an idea of a sort of cult of Keats almost actually and, and encourage him to be read by their contemporaries. But the first biography doesn't come out until around the middle of the century Richard Monckton Milnes, um, better known to some, and certainly in the immediate circles as, as a collector of pornography, um, rather, <laughs> rather than as a biographer. Though I, I've always thought that actually kind of made sense in a peculiar way, because the, the sensualities of Keats's poems, which are really sort of mm. unmatched, you can see might appeal to somebody who was obviously interested in sensual matters, <laughs> taking another form. And by then, the sales of his books are, are beginning to pick up, and very quickly after that, he establishes um, his place in what we do and don't call the, the canon. But again, as we were saying earlier, I think his reputation remains more or less the, the same for a surprisingly long time, which is to say that it's the image of him that is created is of this wilting, suffering, plaintive, put-upon, mm. criticised, suppressed, oppressed person, and really only around the bicentenary of his birth, does that picture start to change and the more radical Keats begins to come into focus. So that means that in this day and age, I mean, right now, um, he's living a rather different sort of life in his posthumous existence than the one that he lived for the first large part of it. Um, and I'm bound to say it seems to me, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I, but it seems to me more in step with the actual nature of his character. That reputation was partly formed, well, maybe largely formed, by the poem that Shelley wrote soon after he right. died, well Adonais. Said. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things you really do so well in your biography is is looking at that poem and saying, actually, he's in some ways, Shelley has done a disfavour to Keats by writing Yes, indeed. Poem. I mean, on the one hand, it keeps Keats's name in the light, um, because it's for him. But at the same time, it, it presents him in this rather sort of languid and languishing form that is certainly part of his personality but not the dominant part mm -hmm. of it 
it's hard not to feel as one feels with a lot of elegy that really Shelley is writing about himself in that poem mm. as much as he is about uh, the ostensible subject down to and including the fact that Shelley himself probably knew by the time that he wrote the poem that he'd got TB too mm. um, so he was not long for this world I, I often wonder whether the reason that Shelley didn't make any attempt to swim to the shore when his boat went down was because he knew he'd had it anyway. Well, there is an idea that you've explored in fiction that there's almost a there's almost an advantage to dying young. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, if you think of someone like Keats and Shelley, and if you draw the contrast with someone like Wordsworth, who was such a firebrand right. as a exactly. young writer, and and then yes. deteriorates, and then well, yes, I mean, Wordsworth is a very good example of the poet who loses their mojo. The place where you raise that idea is the brilliant novella The Invention of Dr. Cake which I'd love to ask you about because I so enjoyed reading it and it I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the premise of that novella is that perhaps Keats didn't die. Yes um, well it's a sort of counterfactual thing I wanted to ask myself again, in a rather sort of Keatsian way, that's a kind of organic, real-time, sensual way, what it would have been like had he not died. So I made him recover from his TB, go to Rome, everybody says goodbye, and he decides to come back anonymously for reasons that my novella goes into, and goes back to medicine, practising under a a false name, calls himself Dr. Cake, which is not such a far cry from Keats as a a name. It's a a wonderful thought experiment of sort of in that extraordinary situation, what would that be like? Well, for indeed, Andrew? indeed. Well, Andrew, that feels like a good moment to finish today's episode. I'm so grateful to you for joining us today and for sharing such wise and insightful thoughts on Keats's life and, uh, well, and his yes, work. Well, it's a re- real treat for me. I mean, there are few things that I enjoy doing more than thinking about Keats, and you've, you've made it delightful for me, so thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure having for you. For me too. Thank you. Many thanks to Sir Andrew Motion, Rob Shakespeare and Keats House, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, I've walked back onto Hampstead Heath and up Parliament Hill, to one of the best views in all of London. I can see St Paul's Cathedral, not far from Moorgate, where Keats was born, and I thought we could finish with a short passage from a poem called I Stood Tiptoe Upon a Little Hill, which Keats wrote on Hampstead Heath. I stood tiptoe upon a little hill. The air was cooling and so very still. The clouds were pure and white as flocks new-shorn and fresh from the clear brook. Sweetly they slept on the blue fields of heaven. And then there crept a little noiseless noise among the leaves, born of the very sigh that silence heaves. For not the faintest motion could be seen of all the shades that slanted o'er the green. There was wide wandering for the greediest eye to peer about upon variety. Far round the horizon's crystal air to skim And trace the dwindled edgings of its brim. I gazed a while, 
and felt as light and free as though the fanning wings of Mercury had played upon my heels. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.